Good morning, everybody. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open up to 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. Um, and we got some ground to cover this morning. We got to talk about submitting to the government and submitting to your boss. Now, thankfully, none of you guys have any feelings or opinions about those things. So this will be nice and simple, right? Um, I, I was actually kind of thinking about it. In 14 years of preaching, the only time I've actually kind of been heckled um, from the congregation was when I talked about politics. So I'm kind of eager to see if I can do this uh, again this week. Now, um, over the past three weeks, we've been looking at the book of First Peter. And in, in this letter, Peter's writing to Christians who were spread throughout Roman provinces. And he, he's writing to Christians who are being persecuted, oppressed, they're suffering for their faith. And he calls them um, sojourners or exiles, foreigners, aliens in uh, the world. But Peter's kind of going, okay, guys, I know it's not great right now, but this is only act one. He says there, there's another part coming, that because of your faith in Jesus, you have a living hope in which you're going to spend eternity with God in his kingdom. And so throughout these chapters, some of the things, or one of the things Peter's been trying to do uh, with them is to help them understand their identity. And so he, he says some things like this, that you're children of God, you're living stones, but then uh, last week, Greg covered this verse, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Peter writes, you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. Now, these, to us, we hear that and we just kind of think, okay, cool titles. But for them, they, the early church, they weren't just titles. And for us, they're not just titles. These are realities. And the early church, they found their identity in it. It changed how they saw themselves, but also how they interacted with the world around them at that time. And so years ago... Um, there was a Saturday Night Live sketch, and it had Will Ferrell in it. And in this sketch, Will Ferrell was portraying kind of this middle-aged businessman, and he was sitting around the dinner table with his family. Um, it was his wife and his teenage daughter. And it's like awkward and silent, and then he just kind of tries to bring something up about his day. And it just devolves into this argument where they're yelling at each other. And then it just like all of a sudden stops and they go back to eating and somebody tries to talk again. And again, just it breaks out into this argument. And during the argument, Will Ferrell's character, <clears throat> he keeps shouting things like this. I'm a division manager. That is very important. You do not talk to me like that. People are scared of me. I'm a division manager. I'm in charge of 29 people. I drive a Dodge Stratus. You do not talk to me that way. I can do 100 push-ups in 20 minutes. And he's just kind of shouting these different things. And I, why do I bring this up? Because this is kind of, maybe for Peter, and this is what some, some Bible scholars are saying, that the reason he goes where he goes next is because because he's talking to Christians who found a new status in Christ that they never had before. And he, he's going, okay, I got to be careful because this might go to their head and they might start interacting with people and the world in a negative way when they're mistreated, um, when they suffer for their faith. That when people would accuse them or, or oppress them or, or make them suffer, they might kind of be like, well, do you know who I am? I'm a chosen child of God. I am a, a, a royal priest. You don't treat me that way. You don't talk to me that way because I'm a member of a holy nation. I can recite three Bible verses in 20 minutes. Like it, it could be that it goes to their head and they start mistreating those around them. 
And so Peter writes the following to kind of ground themselves in their identity. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 to 15. It says, For the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority, whether the king as head of state or the officials he has appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. It is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. Now, when I was a kid and, and a teenager, I really did not care about what took place in politics. And I was just like, it doesn't really impact me at all. But then I, I got older. I started paying taxes, and I saw how decisions at various levels of government impacted my life. It could impact my bank account, and I, I kind of just started paying more and more attention to those different things. Now, we're not scheduled to have another federal election until October of 2025, but there was this recent nano survey conducted, um, and it found that 46% of the respondents, they wanted a federal election as soon as possible, or at least sometime in the, the 2024 calendar year. And so you can look at that and go, okay, nearly half of Canadians are, are saying like, okay, we, we want to change at the federal government level. And it can be hard for us to submit to the king in 2024 when we don't necessarily agree with everything that our government believes or everything that our government does. Um, and we, we could look at Peter's instructions here and go, okay, Peter, that might have worked in the ancient world, but you do not understand life in Canada in 2024. And, and the, the, the king that we need to submit to, you, you don't get it. But Peter, he writes to a church that's living under the reign of a guy named Nero. Emperor Nero, he, he ruled the Roman Empire from 54 to 68 AD. And in 64 AD, there was what was known as the Great Fire of Rome. And it burned down a significant portion of the city uh, when it took place. And there were various theories about the cause of the fire. But uh, one kind of theory was this, that Nero himself was responsible for lighting the fire because Nero was like, if that area is gone, I can develop it how I want. And he could build some infrastructure there. And in the wake of the fire, Nero faced public discontent. We, we would say like he wasn't polling well at that time. And so to deflect blame from himself, Nero targeted a convenient scapegoat, the Christians. And at that time, Christians, they were a misunderstood, they were a marginalized group. Um, Christians were accused of cannibalism at that time because it was said in their gatherings, they ate the body and drank the blood of their savior. And like, well, what are you talking about? It was a misunderstanding, but that's what people thought. They accused Christians of having orgies during worship. Christians were accused of damaging trade and the economy. They were accused of tampering with family relationships that when one, one person became a Christian and others did not, it could cause this divide within the family. Christians were accused of disloyalty to Caesar because Christians would not worship Caesar as God, and they said only Jesus Christ is Lord. And so Nero, he, he sees this, and he exploits this, and he accuses the Christians of starting the fire. And with this comes growing persecution. That historians tell us that the Christians were subject to state-sanctioned um, punishment because of this. The things that it included, that punishment was crucifixion, being torn apart by wild animals in the arena, and being burned alive. 
Now, I, I, if you're here, um, sometimes like you, you might hear me say, I think we got to be very careful with that P word, the word persecution, because we're not facing anything like that. It's like sometimes it gets a little uncomfortable, a little awkward, but, but that's, that's about it. And so against that backdrop, Peter says to Christians, submit to the governing authorities, honor the king. And so if, if Peter says that to Christians who are living under Nero, for us here in Canada in 2024, I don't think we can go, okay, this doesn't apply to us. We're, we're the exemption. Now, why, why should we submit to the governing authorities? Well, here's a few reasons. In Romans 13, 1, Paul writes, everyone must submit to governing authorities for all authority comes from God and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. And so Paul's going, those who are governing leaders, they are God's servants. They're, they're, the state is divinely appointed to provide and protect order in society. Peter has said when we were reading that text, he's going, they're there to um, punish those who do wrong and to reward those who do good. And so the government helps keep things in check. Um, maybe you have an experience like this. Like when I was in grade nine, <clears throat> my teacher would leave the room. I, he would just disappear for minutes at a time during the day. And there was always one kid. I was in French immersion. Um, he would pick up the French English dictionary on his desk and he would just whiff it across the room at his friend. It would hit his friend. He'd pick up the French English dictionary. He would throw it and it would hit somebody else. And all of a sudden chaos would just ensue that like in the, in the absence of the governing authority, the teacher, just like the, the class was, was chaos. They were throwing pens and pencils and, and French English dictionaries at one another. And so what we see is that without a ruling authority, things quickly can devolve into chaos. And we've seen throughout history what happens when there might not be a government in place. And we have to also realize that um, for the, the church, the, the, the reason that the gospel and the church was able to spread in that time in many ways with the ease it did was because of kind of the peace that was in place by Rome. It was peace with the sword, yes, but it was relatively safe to travel and there were kind of systems by which you could do these different things. And Peter's concern for Christians to be good citizens also might be in part so that the, the judicial arm of the government did not get brought against the Christians or over the churches. Now, when we hear submit, we might go, okay, um, total obedience, but that's, that's not what Peter's getting at. It's not unquestioned obedience. In Mark 12, 17, Jesus says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. And so the idea of this is that we are to be good citizens under the earthly government under which we live as far as possible. There, there's this example in Acts chapter five, though. Uh, the Jewish leaders say to a couple of the apostles, they, they're preaching Jesus, and they, they say, we order you to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, it says, Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than any human authority. And so they were told by Jesus to, to preach, to, to share the gospel with those. And so when they say, don't do it, they're going, okay, our obedience actually has to lie with our God, with our Savior. And so we, we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of God if, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian. And so it's by the laws of God's kingdom that you direct your life first and foremost. And so we, we would also say this, like there, there are aspects of your life that no earthly government should ever have kind of um, jurisdiction over. Like the, the, the value of a human life, oh, the, the, the purpose or, of a human life. 
Who, who gets to worship or who you get to worship and what you do with your life. Those belong to God. Now, here's the thing. I know for, for some of us, we look at different leaders, different levels of government. We go, okay, that leader is much easier to submit to because maybe they're charismatic. Maybe they're charming. Maybe we just like, I like their platform. I agree with it. So like submitting to that leader is not an issue. But Peter's not going, okay, if you like the leader, submit to them. That, that's when he can do it. No, he, he says this, submit for the Lord's sake. So here, here's what Peter's kind of saying is that the way Christians relate to the government under which they live reflects on God. And as Christians, there's been times where um, we've not done a great job at that as living as citizens for the Lord's sake. And this is the section of my message where I'm most likely to get some emails back on. Um, but it can be alarming how to be a Christian means that you are aligned with a certain political party, that you, you vote a certain way un, unquestioned, um, and that, that to be a Christian means that you despise anybody who might have other political leanings or a leader of that party or for people who vote that way. And because of this, Christianity has been misunderstood. Um, I would in some ways say been rebranded in different parts of the world as something that it is not. And it's turned people away from Jesus because they don't want anything to do what, with what they think is Christianity. And too often political activity by Christians, it's, it's betrayed the mission of Jesus. It's betrayed what Jesus was about. That often Christians have gotten involved in politics to protect, protect their own investments, to accumulate power for themselves, now, please hear me. I'm not saying Christians should not be in politics. Um, I think if God's called you to do that, you should do that. But what I'm saying is we need to be careful about our motivations for doing it as Christians. Like Mark Clark, he writes the following. Jesus Christ rejects power as a means of hurting or coercing others. He warns us of the temptation to be in power over others politically and militarily. In other words, Christianity is fundamentally not about possessing political or military power and authority over people, but about serving them. Love your enemies, Jesus taught, and pray for those who persecute you. Like if, if we go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, what, what did Peter say? He's, again, talking about Christians' identity, and he says, You are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. And so what Peter says is, again, if you are a Christian, if you are a believer, a follower of Jesus, you are a priest. And that's not just supposed to be this cool title that you get to have, but that there's a function that as a priest, you are a representative of God to people, that you reflect the holiness of God to people, that you show others the goodness of God. And so what we have to understand that our lives here on earth it's not just about us. It's not about proclaiming our own value or our own importance or getting our way. That Peter's going, no, you've got a job. You are to show the goodness of God to others. And so your citizenship, it's, it's in the kingdom of God. And if you're a Christian, one of the things Peter's been saying is you get to look forward to spending an eternity in God's kingdom and enjoying all the benefits that come with that citizenship. 
But while you're here, you represent the kingdom of God to the world. Like in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. Um, I'm, I'm going to do this without naming countries because I'll get in trouble if I do. Um, but sometimes citizens of different countries go and visit countries or different countries. They travel the world. And as they do that, they interact with people from different um, parts of the world. And um, people from that country, they, depending on how they treat the people in the, the place they're visiting, they start to get a reputation for being a certain way. And it can be a good reputation and that can be a bad reputation. But the way that that person interacts with the people in the nation that they're, they're, they're visiting, what happens is that starts to form the opinion of, of all those, or like how people view every person from that country. And this is kind of what Peter and, and some of the other writers of the New Testament are getting at, that, that as believers, you are a citizen of another nation living in this nation. And Peter's saying you should live in such a way that it gives the kingdom of God a good reputation and not a negative one. And so every Christian is an ambassador of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And by your life, you either commend the kingdom or you make others think less of it. And, and here's the thing, I, I doubt that um, every person in this room here agrees with every decision made by our government at, at every level. Like we, we have different opinions, but here's what I would say. And like, uh, we, I'm speaking to those of us, we're in Canada. We are blessed to live in a, a stable nation, a prosperous nation. And so we should be able to be known for our respect for our government, even when we disagree with it. And when we disagree with it, there's ways in which we can express that displeasure. I mean, we can, we can write letters to our government representatives. We can um, go to protests. We can also like vote. That's, that's a great way to kind of go, here's, here's what I'm thinking about our nation and the direction it should go. But we've been instructed to strive and to strive to live good and useful lives as citizens of the country in which we live. And as, as Christians, we should strive to be the best citizens of the country in which we live because our ethic, it calls us to do what is in the best interest of others. So vote, participate, pursue the well-being of the country in which you live. And this, this part's like, I'm, I'm putting it almost in here for me. Like I, I'm tempted at times to critique different levels of government. But in, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul tells us, pray for rulers and for all who have authority so that we can have quiet and peaceful lives full of worship and respect for God. And I'm saying like this, this applies to me too, that when we're tempted to critique our, our governing leaders, maybe instead of taking that energy and pour, putting it into criticism, that we actually direct it into prayer and for the decisions and the ways in which they'll lead because we never know the way in which God could change things again in our, our city, our province, our nation, if we began to pray for those who are leading us. Now, we also need to remember this. Your hope is not in getting a, a mayor, a premier, a prime minister who's going to give you what you want. Your hope is in Christ and the promise of his kingdom and what he's done for you. All right, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 uh, to 20, P Peter keeps going. He says, you who are slaves must submit to your masters with all respect. Do what they tell you, not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are cruel. 
For God is pleased when conscious of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. Of course, you get no credit for being patient if you are beaten for doing wrong, but if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. Now, I want to say that this verse was wrongly used uh, in years past to justify slavery as we know it um, in North America. That was like taking scripture, that was twisting it, that's not what this is talking about. That what Peter's writing about, um, when he uses the word slave, you could actually use another word, bond servant, or, or just kind of this word servant. And so he, he's not talking about slavery as we kind of think of it in North America. And so again, I would use the word servant because it kind of, he's talking about to some people who are in some sort of employment relationship with their master. And so it's not just like low people who he's talking to. It could be a doctor, it could be a teacher, a musician, actor, secretary, steward. All of these people were paid servants. And so this is how they made their living in ancient Rome. Um, now, Peter's basic teaching, what we can do is we can take it and we can apply it to employee-employer relationships today. Now, most of us, I think we, we have to make a living. I, I don't know if anybody here is like sitting on a giant pile of cash in which you're like, I don't have to worry about working another day in my life. Like, God bless you if that's you. Um, we got a capital campaign, so we should talk. Um, but what I would say is like most of us have to make a living in some way. Um, Throughout my life, I've, I've had a job almost all the time, some sort of job. Like as a kid, I think I was like eight years old. I started delivering newspapers in, in our neighborhood. It was a different time back then, I know. Um, and then as I became a teenager, I started working at Wendy's Restaurant. Um, and then a few summers, I started working at Canoe Cove Christian Camp as a, as a full-time counselor. Got into college. I did some time at uh, Canadian Tire, working in the sports department, uh, selling treadmills and pools to people. Um, I knew nothing. Um, but then I, I, later in college, I actually took on a youth ministry at a local church while I was there. And I would pick up odd jobs here and there um, as, as they came up. So maybe helping do landscaping. And, and like, you, you know this, if you've had di different jobs, you go, some jobs are better than other jobs. Like there are some jobs that you just describe like, man, that was terrible. I would, I just know I don't want to do that with my life. But one of the things that kind of impacts the experience that you have at your job is the people that you get to work with, whether it's your coworkers or your boss, that you could have a, a, a terrible job, like it's just mundane, but you have a great boss and it's like that changes everything. Or you could have like a great job, great benefits, but then you get a terrible boss and that kind of changes the whole experience. Like when I was working at Wendy's, um, some of the guys, they learned that I was a Christian, and so they started calling me Jesus. That became kind of my nickname around Wendy's restaurant. It didn't help that I was growing my hair a bit longer uh, at the time. And, and so they would just kind of call me Jesus. And then uh, my gen general manager got in on it, and he started calling me Jesus. He made me a, a name tag that, that said Jesus. Now, I, I never wore that. It just felt wrong to do that. But I'd go in sometimes for my shift, and on the assignment board, I'd be like, where's my name? I, I can't, like, what, what's James supposed to be doing? I couldn't find it. But Jesus was, was scooping fries that day. Um, and so it was, it, like, it didn't bother me. It was kind of, it was a joke. Um, but then we got a new general manager. 
And he, he, I remember it was pretty early on. He goes, why do people call you Jesus? I said, oh, I'm a Christian. And like, this is kind of it's the, their joke. And he heard that and he was okay. Is this why I'm not able to schedule you for Sunday mornings? And I said, yeah, when I was hired under the first general manager, it was kind of with the understanding that I just wouldn't work Sunday mornings because of my family and I, we, we attend church. And, and he just did not like that. And so when he would be scheduling, it was just kind of being like, I need you to work Sunday morning. And I'd be like, I, I really can't. Um, and it was just this, this, this source of tension there. And then there'd be, there'd be times where if he had an opportunity, he'd take a jab at me or take a jab at a kind of the Christian faith. Uh, he seemed to get good pleasure of give me the worst jobs, like scrub the burnt chili pots that take hours to get those clean. Now, I'll I'll be honest, it didn't really bother me because I'm like, I'm working at Wendy's. This is not going to be the rest of my life. Like I'll put in my few hours, I'll go home, I'll be fine. But why I kind of bring this up is that bosses, they can change the experience. Bosses can be tough. Like I'll tell you about my current boss sometime when when he's not, man, that guy, ugh. But Peter, what what he's saying is that sometimes your boss isn't going to treat you well or your employer, but he makes this valid point. If you are a Christian, just because you're reprimanded, you get disciplined, you don't get to go like, I'm being persecuted. Like you don't get to do that. He's saying, are you showing up on time? Is your work good? Are you doing what you're paid to do? If you're not, that's not persecution. You're just being dumb. He's like, don't give them a reason to discipline you. Don't be a terrible employee. It would be work hard. Do what you're responsible for. Strive to be the best employee that you can be. Be known for your productivity, your work ethic, your kindness, your loyalty, your fairness, your honesty. But Peter acknowledges that that you could be a good employee and and yeah, you might still get um, mistreated. Now, slaves or, or servants back in this time, it's not like there was an HR department that they could go like, ah, oh, my, my manager, my master's mistreating me. Like that, that wasn't really something that was in place. And so I would say to you, it's like if you are being mistreated by your boss, your workplace, and they have some sort of process in place, by all means, engage that process. Peter's also not saying like, if you are in this terrible work environment, you have to stay there. That's, that's not what Peter's saying. Like you, you could look and, and change jobs. But what we also have to realize is that the perfect workplace does not exist. And, and why? Because there's broken and sinful people in absolutely every one of them. And if the perfect workplace did exist, the day you showed up, that was done. Like that, that was gone. It was no longer a perfect workplace because that's you as well. Broken, messed up. And so what if a person has the attitude or a Christian attitude towards authority and work, and yet they're treated with injustice, insult, and injury? What do you do? Well, Peter answers that question in verse 21 to 23. He says, For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. He never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He, was, he left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. And so Peter's going, like, you're being mistreated. You're suffering for, from other people. Peter's going, like, you're not the first person that this has ever happened to. That's exactly what they did to Jesus, that he, was, he did good, but he was mistreated. He suffered. He, he was killed. But Peter goes, Jesus left you an example that you can follow. He accepted the insults, the injury, 
and he bore them with love for the sins of humanity. And that, that word um, example, it, it's, it's a specific word. It's the Greek word hupogramos, which um, you, you can probably hear a root in there, gramos, grammar. Um, and it comes from this idea of how children in the ancient world were taught how to write. And it's not that different from how we're taught to write. Like if you're teaching your, your child to, to make their letters, what you often do is you buy a workbook and it's got a solid line up here, a solid line on the bottom, and it's got that, that dotted line going across. And what you'll often find is there's kind of a pattern of, of a letter just dotted out there. And what is, what is the instruction? Trace the letter. Trace it again. Trace it again. Trace it again. And this is kind of, the, this is kind of what Peter's getting at in this word. He's going, Jesus left you an example a pattern to follow, a way of life to interact with this world, and you were to copy and emulate that. And so if you need to suffer injustice and injury, you're only experiencing what Jesus has already gone through, that Jesus suffered in order to bring people back to God. And it may be, Peter says, that when you suffer insult and injury and injustice without complaining, without retaliating, without threatening, and with love, that you show a life that might lead others to God. And that might be how, like Jesus says, like let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. By doing that, that might be one of the ways that you do that. Like I'll tell my kids sometimes, like, ah, this person did this to me. Uh, I'll say, like, we cannot control how people will treat us. The only thing we get to control is how we respond to them when they do. And when people mistreated Jesus, he entrusted his case to God. He knew that God would make all things right in the end. And we get to live with that knowledge that in, in the end, every wrong deed in the universe is either going to be covered by the blood of Jesus or it's going to be repaid justly by God in the final justice judgment. That no injustice that you've ever suffered, it does not escape the eye of God and it's not going to escape the justice of God. And so you can't control what people will say about you or how they might treat you, but you can choose to live a life that challenges any allegations that say your Christian beliefs lead you to be hostile or mean-spirited towards others, that we can choose to follow the way of Jesus. The letter um, to Diognetus it's this ancient letter from the second century. I know you're probably familiar with it, probably on your nightstand. You read this all the time. Um, but this, this letter is addressed, addressed to a guy named Diognetus, and it's explaining the Christian faith to somebody who, who might be skeptical about it. It's explaining Christians to, to somebody who might be curious about their way of life. And I just want to read a few sections from it. It says, Christians are indistinguishable from other men either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. With regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it is Greek or foreign. And yet there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. They share their meals, but not their wives. They live in the flesh, 
but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven. Obedient to the laws, yet they live on a level that transcends the law. A blessing is their answer to abuse, deference their response to insult. Christians are found in all the cities of the world, but they cannot be identified with the world. I love this because what it tells us is that the early church, they lived in such a way that it required an explanation. And the church is meant to be a countercultural alternative to the ways of the world, a signpost that points to the kingdom of God. In the way of Christ, we might go, I don't know if that will work. Well, by the year 350, it's estimated that 56% of those living in the Roman Empire had become followers of Jesus. And so live in such a way that when people look at you, they will say there's something fundamentally different about that person. It's by the beauty of your everyday life that you show people the goodness of God. Let's pray.